The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, uh, once again, good morning. And yeah, if I haven't uh, met you yet, I'd love to get to meet you after the service this morning. Um, we've been looking at John's Gospel. I think this is week five, I think, or maybe six. I'm not, I can't really remember. Um, but we've been in John's Gospel um, for the last five or six weeks, and we've been working our way through uh, the, these opening few verses, this, uh, this, this opening section called the Epilogue of John's Gospel. And uh, if I can be honest, I feel like we've even rushed it a bit too much. And, and as I was looking at this passage that we're looking at today, I just... I scratched my head and thought, why did, we, why did I think we could get through all of these five verses in one um, morning? And so um, uh, this morning's sermon is going to go for about three hours, um, just so you know. Um, no, not really. It will be shorter than three hours, I can guarantee you that much. Um, uh, because there is just so much packed into John's gospel, just so much. Every single word is a treasure chest full of goodness. And um, we'll continue to, to discover this as we work through John's gospel, as we work through this. So let's spend some time just committing our time to the Lord, and then we'll open up God's word. Father, we come before you and ask that as we open your word, that you would open up our hearts to it. The Holy Spirit, you would teach us wonderful, delightful things, Lord, in your word. And Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Beyond anything that I have to say this morning, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Lord, I, I praise you and I thank you. I, I, I adore you, Lord, for the fact that so often, so often someone will say to me, I just got so much out of that sermon because of this thing you said and I never even said it, Lord. And we know, Lord, that it is your Holy Spirit who is working in us. Your Holy Spirit speaking to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that once again. Make much of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. May we adore him all the more, Lord. May we, we, may we worship him all the more with our hearts, Father. We love you so much, Father. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to save us from our sins. We, we glorify you and exalt your name. Amen. I've been doing um, a little bit of research this week about neutron stars. Now, I'm no astronomer, um, but I learned a, a little bit about neutron stars this week. A neutron star, um, as far as stars go, is a small star. It's a type of star, and it's amongst the smallest of the stars. Um, if, we were to be, if we were to stand at one end or one pole of a neutron star and somebody else was to walk away from us as far as they could um, but still stay on that neutron star, they would be at the other end, at the other pole, they would be 30 kilometers away. So kind of like from here to Mount Coulomb. So as far as stars go, relatively small. But the thing about neutron stars is that they have an incredibly strong gravitational force, gravitational pull. Their powerful gravity means that they are incredibly dense. There's an, an, a whole lot packed in that it just it's squeezed in smaller and smaller into this space. A neutron star is so dense that if you were to somehow take a teaspoon and, and scoop up 
some neutron star into that teaspoon, what you could hold of, new, the amount of neutron star that you could hold in that teaspoon would, would weigh uh, a, the equivalent of approximately the same, the same weight as Mount Everest, held in a teaspoon. Around 10 million tons, they say. That's their, their estimation of that. Hugely dense. Hugely dense. The problem is, though, that, is that you would never be able to do that. You would never be able to approach a neutron star with a teaspoon and, and scoop up a teaspoon of it because you'd be decimated and annihilated and incinerated by your proximity to this star. We can't get close enough to a neutron star to truly understand them. We can only know about them because very clever scientists sit very, very, very far away with infrared telescopes and all the rest of the stuff that they use, Wi-Fi, internet. I think they use the internet, they Google it, they, they work it out. Um, they, they know what they're doing and they've discovered this about neutron stars. The only way that we can work this out is by being at a great distance. Well, we worship the God who makes neutron stars, who made the neutron stars and holds them in the palm of his hand, and like their gravity, his holiness, which when we say holiness, we mean his purity, his perfection, and his otherliness. Like he's just, there's no one like God. That's what we mean when we say holy. His holiness is so potent, it is so perfect, it is so pure, that anything in close proximity to the eternally holy God of the universe would be decimated, annihilated, and incinerated. This is what we mean by the eternal holiness of God. We simply cannot draw near to Him because of our sin. And that there is the biggest problem that you and I will ever face. Our sin, which has separated us from the love and the joy and the peace and the delight and the everlasting satisfaction that is found only in the presence of God. Our sin has barred us permanently from Him. Every other problem that we face, as significant and as steep as they are, they are just symptoms of this significant problem, of this main problem. And the reason why that is the biggest problem is because we were created to be in God's presence. We were created to, to dwell with Him, to have a relationship with Him, to know Him, and for Him to know us, for us to be one with Him. But and our whole lives just don't seem to work until we are with Him. Like uh, Augustine, he said, our souls are restless until they find rest in you. But the story of the gospel is that God came near to us in the person of Jesus Christ so that we could know him and so that we could be made righteous so our sins could be forgiven and done away with and his righteousness would be imputed to us, credited to us, given to us and so that we could re-enter the presence of God and, and he came to us in such a way that God came to us in such a way that we were not annihilated, incinerated and decimated by him but in actual fact we are able to come to know him and actually be friends with him. God has revealed himself supremely to us in Jesus Christ. It's not that, God is, that Jesus Christ has, has turned the volume down on God a bit. If you want to know what God is really like, you just need to look at Jesus. 
But there is also safety in proximity to God in Jesus Christ. This is what John is going to explain to us in the last five verses of this, of his opening epilogue. God has done the impossible. God has made himself known to us. The holy God has made himself known to sinners. We can get to know God without being destroyed by his holiness. And in these verses, John is really kind of wrapping up his epilogue. He's kind of tying all the pieces together to produce one thing, to say one thing, which is we can know God. God has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. And that tells us something, that if God has made himself known, that God wants to be known. He wants us to know him. God, God's desire is for us to know him. Like if you're wondering what... God's plans are for you. You can know this, is that his plans for you is that you know him. Now this whole passage that we're going to look at, this whole passage, um, it's dripping with the desert. And what I mean by that is that there was 40 years of time between when Israel left Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea on dry land and 40 years between that when they, from, to when they crossed uh, the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. And in that 40-year period of time, we call them like the time that Israel was wandering around in the desert being guided by the Lord. Um, these are the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when I say that this passage is dripping with the desert, I'm saying it's dripping with these references and these, uh, these um, uh, allusions to those books, to what was going on for Israel in that time. And we would do well to get to know those books to be able to understand John's gospel and to be able to understand the New Testament as well. My, my New Testament lecturer at Bible College used to always say, as a New Testament lecturer, he needs to know the Old Testament better than he knows the New Testament for him to truly be able to understand the New Testament. We, we need to understand what's going on and what happened in those times because John's going to continue to reference that. And this is why I'm always encouraging us to be in our word, to be constantly reading God's word, particularly the Old Testament, particularly those books where it feels like they're a bit hard to understand and we're not really sure if we can actually understand them. But you don't have to go to Bible college to understand Leviticus. My encouragement to you is just to read it. And there's going to be, in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, there's going to be passages that you will just read and you won't have any idea, like, what's with all the pomegranates? Why are there tassels on everything? Why is, why, like, and you just keep reading, though. Just keep reading. And then next year, when you come back to that in your Bible reading plan, you're kind of a bit more prepared for it. And just keep reading. We won't understand John's gospel, let us learn his words here, unless we understand that. And the reason why is because... When God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, he firstly made himself known. He made himself known to his people, introducing himself firstly to Moses, where he told Moses his name, Yahweh. He then rescued Israel with many signs and wonders and by bringing them safely through the deathly waters of the Red Sea. Then in the desert, he gave them his law, means by which they could actually come to know him, come to know what he is like, what, how they should live their lives in light of his rescue. He also gave them the tabernacle, the, the place where they would meet with him, where he would dwell. And he continued to make himself known to God's people, uh, principally through meeting with Moses, face to face even with Moses. Moses. 
as it says. And this passage is going to show us that God did all of this again in a complete and final way in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to earth, he gave us a new law, a new command, he says in John 13. A new command I give you, that you love one another. This new era would also mean a new way of relating to God. Not just in a geographical location like at the tabernacle or at the temple, but actually worshipping God in spirit and in truth. Jesus is going to tell us in John chapter 2 that uh, he's going to replace the temple. And in this new era, it wasn't just that Moses revealed him, sorry, God revealed himself to one person like he did with Moses, but actually God reveals himself to all people. Everybody can have a face-to-face relationship with the God of the universe. And so we can't hope to understand all that's happening here unless we are understanding that John is drawing everything that he's saying here he's drawing so much of it from these books of the old testament so let's get into it let's look at these verses let's walk through them bit by bit verse 14 john writes the word became flesh and dwelt among us we observed his glory as the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth so straight away we see john returning to this title of the word If you remember from the week one of this series, John chose this title, The Word, to refer to Jesus. It it, it harkens back to Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning beginning God created the the heavens and the earth. John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And it's, it's, it's there to essentially say to us, there is an underlying principle and meaning to the entire world, and that underlying principle and meaning is not just a theory, that is a, he is a person and his name is Jesus. And here, verse 14, John says something extraordinary. He says, the word became flesh. The word, which is God's self-expression, who was with God and who was God, became flesh. He became human. It's not that God put on a costume and pretended to be a person. Jesus is not God pretending to be man. Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. And friends, this is such wonderful and excellent news for us because we know now that Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He knows our weakness. He knows our frailty. He doesn't just know about it. He, doesn't, he hasn't read about our weakness in a book somewhere. He knows it. He's experienced that. He's been tempted in every way that we have been tempted, and yet he did not sin. And this is how we can know that there is no one who has outsinned God's love and grace. Because we know that Jesus, is, Jesus knows what we've gone through, knows what it's like to be human, And he has sacrificed his life on our behalf. He is our high priest, Hebrews says. So many people make the mistake of thinking that Christianity is this bar that God has set. And he's waiting to see who's going to make it. Who can actually reach this impossible uh, expectation of mine? It's wrong. 
Christianity is God coming in the person of Jesus Christ, reaching that bar himself, that standard that none of us could, doing so on our behalf and giving us, gifting us, imputing to us his perfect record of obedience. And that's only possible because the word became flesh. Jesus became human. And then John says that he dwelt among us. And the word that he uses there for dwell, um, is, it's an interesting word. It's the exact same word that was used in the Old Testament to refer to the tabernacle. It's that literally that Jesus, um, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. When Israel was in the desert and they were wandering for 40 years, God instructed Moses to build for him a, ta- a tabernacle. It's like this very, very large tent. And this large tent, it held um, the holy. It was the held the holy of holies. Held the um, the 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 stone tablets that um, that God had written the law on, and it symbolized, and it was the the dwelling place of God here on earth. And the idea of it was that this would be where Israel would meet with God. And it was set up right in the middle of their, of their camp. So whenever they stopped and camped somewhere, the, the tabernacle was set up first, and then everybody would set up their tents around it, facing it. So then when you woke up in the morning and you, you stepped out of your tent, you should be able to see the tabernacle, or at least the top of the tabernacle, depending, depending on how far you were back. And John is drawing from that imagery to say that the word which became flesh set up his tent amongst us. God did not remain at a distance, but he came to live with us and be with us in our midst. God does not want distance. God does not want to have a long-distance relationship with you. His desire is to live with you and to dwell with you so that we could know him, to be with us. He loves us this much. that He, being the most wonderful, the most filled with joy, the most delightful, the most excellent, the most glorious thing we can ever get our hearts on. And he wants that to be in our hearts. He wants that to be with us. He wants us to enjoy him. If you're convinced that God's at a distance from you, if you're thinking, I I wish I had that kind of relationship with God, you've got to know this, God wants it more than you do. He wants you to come to him with the empty hands of faith and say, God, just come and dwell with me. Open your heart to him. And John and the other disciples, the other apostles, they saw the glory of Jesus. He says, we saw his, we observed his glory. And I want to linger for just a little moment on this word observed. And I know this is getting kind of word by word at the moment, but it's important. This word observe is, is important to John. Not just the word observed, but the idea of seeing, observing, looking at, beholding, getting your eyes on. See, John wants us to see. He wants us to see the glory of God, but he knows that we can't see without light. We can't see without the, the light shed shedding light on, on things, on God, on the reality of our brokenness, on the reality of our, of our distance from God because of our sin. And so Jesus came as the light so that we might see the glory of God. And John's going to continue to use this theme of light throughout his gospel. Sight, 
light, seen, day. These are going to become subtle hints throughout the gospel about belief and about those who are coming to a place of faith, those who God is opening their eyes to the eyes of faith to see and receive Jesus as he is. And then opposite that, blindness, darkness, and night, these are going to be themes and motives that illustrate disbelief. Those who rejected Jesus, or at least those who struggled to receive him at that time. And so if you were to consider someone like Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews, he came to Jesus in John 3. He's the one who heard Jesus say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus was the guy who heard Jesus originally say that. And in John 3, we're told that Nicodemus came to Jesus and it was night. Now that's not just a way of saying, oh, it's night time. That's saying that he's coming in, in the time of darkness. And he struggles to understand. He struggles to fully receive Jesus. But then you turn the page to John chapter 4. And Jesus meets a woman, a Samaritan woman at the well. And they met at midday. The brightest part of the day. And yes, there's all these... There's so much to that. There's, there's the idea that the, the, the fact that actually um, that she's coming out at midday because she's kind of isolated and on her own, that's absolutely true. But she is the one who actually receives Jesus. She, she receives him fully. Consider someone like Judas who betrayed Jesus. And we're told in chapter 13, verse 30, that he went out from Jesus. And then John throws this extra little line in. And it was night. Light and Darkness, day and night, seen and blindness become these themes that John is going to open up again and again and again. In short, John wants us to see the reality. He wants our eyes to be open to the reality of God and the reality that our sin has put us desperately out of relationship with God. And Jesus, John says, came as the light for us to see him, to behold him, to observe his glory. And the place where Jesus is the most glorious is on his cross. The place that Jesus shines the brightest is on the cross. To observe the cross is to observe God's glory. It's to believe that the cross and the empty tomb, that that is good news for us. This is what John means when he qualifies his glory as the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory that Jesus had that John and the other apostles witnessed that was from the Father. But it was not a, a luminous and glow that, that followed Jesus around. It wasn't that Jesus had a halo above his head. The glory that John observed and he wants us to observe is the same glory of the Father. It's God's grace and truth. That's what he wants us to see. And the reason why we can say that it's the same glory as the Father is because there's another person in the Bible who saw the glory of God and grace and truth is what he saw. In Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God's glory. He actually says, show me your glory, Lord. And strangely, God says, okay. He says, I will cause all my goodness. That's the glory. I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim the name, the Lord, before you. 
I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's God's glory, his goodness, his grace, and his compassion. In other words, I'm going to show you my glory, and my glory uh, is going to be my goodness, my grace, and my compassion. The brightness and beauty of God's glory that Moses was going to see was his goodness. And then it happens if you turn over to Exodus 34 and you continue reading there, God put Moses in the crevice of a rock and he covered up his hand. Because he covered up the, covered up, uh, the crevice with, um, with his hand so that Moses wouldn't be able to see God's face because he's just too holy. He would have died from that. And, Moses, and, the God, and God passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. And those words, faithful love, are, are really, really important because theolog- theologians point out faithful love and truth can easily be translated as grace and truth. Jesus came full of glory, full of grace and truth. When John says that Jesus' glory was full of grace and truth, he's saying that the glory that he and his friends saw was the exact same glory that Moses saw on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. And he's even saying that in Jesus, we have all been given not just the same, but a better benefit that Moses had because Moses could not see the Lord's face. But we can, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can see him truly as he is. And so, friends, we need to observe the cross. When John says we we observed his glory, the invitation is for us to observe the glory of the Lord to look at the cross, to behold the cross. And what I mean by that is opening our Bibles and remembering that Jesus died, the holy God of the universe died on the cross for sinners like you and I. This is actually how we grow as disciples. It's how we grow and mature and become more and more like Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we all with unveiled faces, that's faces that we can fully see, we are looking as in a mirror, looking in his mirror, think the way that we look in a mirror, that we actually look closely and we look for any imperfections and spots. So observing, looking, not just seeing, but actually looking intently. That's the same kind of word that John uses in John 1.14 there. We are looking at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. God's goal for you and I is that we would become more and more like Jesus. And the way that God will achieve that goal is by pointing us to the cross and to the empty tomb and saying, look at how wonderful my son is. Look at what he's done for you. And we behold that and we become consumed with that and we let that become the foundation of our life and we grow in our understanding of that and we continue to rehearse that to ourselves over and over again. And when we sin, we we come back to the gospel. We don't run away from God. We come back to the gospel and we say, Lord, I know you've got forgiveness for me. I know you've got grace and mercy for, for me. And we receive that. And by doing so, we become more and more like Jesus. Following this, John then refers back to John the Baptist. In verse 15, he says, John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Now, John the Apostle is recapping what he said earlier about John the Baptist, and um, he's really setting up the next part of the story. 
And over the next two weeks, we're going to be hearing more about John the Baptist. He's going to be one of the main characters for the next two weeks. And since we're going to be spending that time there, and, and since verse 30 is almost basically a direct quote from verse 15, I'm just going to, for today, for the sake of time, leave this verse where it is, because we're going to pick it up again um, in a couple of weeks' time. I will say this, though. John considered Jesus to be far more important than he was because he knew that Jesus was the man who had no beginning. That's John the Baptist who believed that. In those days, uh, preeminence and value and superiority was given to someone who was older than you. Age gave you rank. And John the Baptist makes it clear that Jesus is more important than him because Jesus existed before him. But here's the thing. John was six months older than Jesus. We know that from reading Luke's gospel. He's saying that this one who is, I'm, even though I'm older than him, he existed before me. He's saying he's pre-existent. He's the one who existed before existence. Everybody's story starts with their birth, but not Jesus's. When Jesus was born, the Old Testament had been completed for about 400 years, but he is all throughout the Old Testament. He is actually God. Jesus is the man without a beginning. He is actually God. We come now to verses 16 and 17, where John writes, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So earlier, John had written that uh, Jesus' glory was full of grace and truth. And here he says that from that fullness, we have all, that's all of us who have had their eyes opened by God, born of God. We looked at that last week. We have all received grace upon grace. And that word receive there, that we have received him, uh, we receive grace upon grace. That is the exact same word that John uses in verse 11 to say his own people did not receive him. And it's the same word that he uses in verse 12, that to all those who did receive them, he gave them the right to become the children of God. And now he says those who received Jesus, so he's talking about the same group of people, also receive grace upon grace. So it's clear that when John says that we've all received grace upon grace, he's not saying that all of mankind will receive God's grace. Only those who receive Jesus will receive his grace. One of the biggest lies that people will believe about God is that you have to be a good person to receive God's grace. That if you've been mostly good and you've been better than most people, God will look at you with kindness. He will look at how well you've tried. He will look at your sincerity and he will go, well, look, I, I can see that you've really done your best. So I'm going to award you with, with grace. It's almost as if we, we start to be faithful. We start to be good. God sees that and he comes and he finishes the job. The problem with that is that the Bible does not teach that at all. Only those who receive Jesus can receive God's grace, will receive God's grace. You can't have God's grace without Jesus. You can't bypass him and his commands to get God's grace. The only requirement to receive the grace of God, to receive his unmerited favor, is that you come to Jesus with empty hands, ready to receive. You come to him. And the good news is that anyone can come. Anyone can come. 
The old hymn says it well. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Don't be someone who stands at a distance from God. Believe in the lie that, the lie that you are somehow the exception to this. Don't believe the lie that you are, you are the one who has found the, the end of God's grace. The, the bottomless pit of God's grace, you found, you're the one who found the bottom. That's not you. You didn't find that. No one can out-sin the grace of Jesus Christ. There's no one who is outside of the bounds and the realms of God's love for us. You might be sitting here thinking, there's no way God could ever love a person like me. Yes, there is. Absolutely. It's called his grace. His grace is his kindness, his undeserved kindness, his unmerited favor, kindness that is utterly undeserved. In the musical... Um, Les Miserables, Jean Valjean. He's been released from many, many years in a, in a hard prison. And he is a wretch. And he takes refuge one night in the home of a poor priest. The priest shows Jean Valjean great kindness. He feeds him. He gives him a bed to sleep in. But in the night, Jean Valjean runs away. But before he leaves, he robs the old poor priest of his only possession that is worth anything, the silverware that belonged to the church. The law quickly catches up to Jean Valjean. The police catch up to him. And they haul him back to the priest so that he can be identified. And the priest scolds Jean Valjean. However, it's not for stealing, but, also, but, but, but because he also forgot to take the candlesticks with him. He tells the arresting officers that, his, that this man was his guest, that the silverware was a gift and that he also forgot to take the candlesticks which were rightfully his. He pardons Jean Valjean and rewards him for something that he did not deserve. That's grace. That's grace. It is kindness shown to someone who is utterly unworthy of it. And when we receive Jesus, we become recipients of something that we do not deserve. We are utterly unworthy of it, and yet God has given us his grace in rewarding us for something that was procured for us by his son, Jesus Christ, at the cost of his own life. This is grace, friends. This is what we talk about when we sing Amazing Grace. There is nothing more wonderful than God's gift of grace. And we would do well to dwell on the wonderful free gift of grace, receiving it joyfully, fully from him. Now, the way John writes this, grace upon grace. He says we've all received grace upon grace. It's a bit strange. What does it mean, grace upon grace? Does it simply mean lots and lots of grace, like a whole lot of grace and then a whole lot more grace piled up on top of that pile of grace? Well, that, that is true and that is biblical, but I don't think that's exactly what John is saying here. And the reason why is because the word that John uses here for, that is translated as upon is actually not usually translated as upon elsewhere in the New Testament or in the Greek Old Testament. The word that is usually used to translate the word upon isn't actually used here. The word that is used here 
is translated uh, normally in place of or instead of. It doesn't mean in opposition to or against. It, it simply just means to replace. For instance, in Matthew 5, the same word is used. Jesus quotes the Old Testament and he says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Same word that John uses. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to replace. So what would John mean when he says that we've all received grace instead of grace, or grace to replace grace? Well, I think the answer is in verse 17. John says that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, we might make the mistake of thinking that John is pitting grace against the law. He's pitting grace and the law against each other. Like, grace and the law are opposite. Grace is good and the law is bad. And, and this is kind of the approach that Paul takes in his letter to Romans and Galatians. It's a bit of a rough reading of that. But Paul is talking to people who are thinking that they can use the law to make themselves righteous before God. And in that sense, yes, it is opposite grace. But I don't think that, that this is what John is doing here. If it was the case that John is saying that grace and the law are opposite here in this verse, then we'd also have to assume that he is saying that truth, because it's coupled with grace, truth is against the law as well. And we know that that's not true. I think what John is saying here is that the law came, as it, the law as it came to Israel through Moses was itself a gift of grace. And from the fullness of Jesus, we have received more grace upon that grace instead of that grace. You see, God chose Adam not because, sorry, God chose Abraham, not because Abraham showed the right kind of promise, the most promise, but because of his grace. God chose Israel, not because they were the biggest of all nations, but because of his grace. God rescued Israel as a, as a gracious act of salvation. And when God gave the Moses the law to give to the people of Israel, you can read this in Exodus 20, it was delivered on the basis of his gracious salvation. The Ten Commandments in Exodus begins with the words, I am the Lord your God, who what? I'm the Lord your God who's got some great plans for you. I'm the Lord your God who, who's, you know, I need you to obey me. Now, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. I saved you. And then, then God delivers the Ten Commandments. If we think of the law only as being the harsh rules that God mercilessly enforced on his people, then we're going to make a huge mistake. The law was, as it came to them, a matter of grace. It showed people how glorious God is and how far short we fall of his glory. Of his glory. It restrains evil. It protects us from the evil intents of others. And it shows how we can live and how we can serve and how we can please God, doing what is pleasing to him. So when John says that we've all received grace upon grace, I think what he's saying here is that the grace that we receive from Jesus replaces the grace that God intended for us in the law. Commenting on this, Don Carson writes, he says, The covenant of law, then, is seen as a gracious gift from God, 
now replaced by a further gracious gift, the grace and truth embodied in Jesus Christ, here named for the first time as the human being who is nothing other than the Word made flesh. In the law, God's intention was that we would know him, we would live for him, and we would please him. But because of our weakness, it did not work. The gift could not be received because of our weakness. Grace upon grace is the final gift to replace the first gift. The first gift was the law, which could not change our hearts. The second gift was Christ, who came to give us a new heart. He fully and completely obeyed the law on our behalf. Jesus is how we know what God is really like. Jesus is the one who teaches us and restrains the evil in our hearts. And Jesus shows us how we should live and please God. And what's wonderful about this is that if the law was graciously given to us by God as a gift of grace so that we could know him, and if Jesus perfectly obeyed that law and imputes his righteousness to us as a gift of grace, then the cross is God's act of giving us a double helping of his grace. Undeserved kindness to wash away our record of sin and undeserved kindness in making us as righteous as if we ourselves had perfectly obeyed God's law as Jesus did. In other words, God has made it possible for us to know him by giving us grace upon grace. He has obeyed the law that he commanded for us on our behalf. So there is no reason because of Jesus Christ that we cannot know God. He gave us, he gave us his grace in the law and we failed that. So he gave us his son who obeyed the law. We've received grace upon grace. Finally, we come to verse 18, the final line of John's glorious epilogue. And he says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. This is just divine. The reason why no one has ever seen God is because he is simply too glorious for our um, under-the-curse eyes to behold without being destroyed. I said this before, uh, an ice cube has a greater chance of, of being placed on the surface of the sun than we do of, of remaining in the presence of God without being annihilated by his unfiltered glory. And while that is true, says John, Jesus has revealed him. Jesus has made God known. He's done the impossible. Jesus is the one and only son. He's the only one who could have done it. He is the unique son of God. There is no one like him. And he also says, Jesus himself is, is himself God and is at the Father's side. And if you're paying attention, you'll see that that's virtually identical to what he said in verse 1. He says there in verse 18, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. And in verse 1 it said, the Word was with God and the Word was God. They're almost identical except for one really important difference, and it's a massive difference. The difference is in that in verse 1, John says, the word was with God, past tense. And here in verse 18, it says, he says that Jesus is at the Father's side, present tense. John is likely recalling that day when he witnessed the ascension of Jesus. 
He was there for the transfiguration of Jesus. He was there for the crucifixion of Jesus. He was there for the, uh, uh, for the resurrection of Jesus. He was at the empty tomb. And he was there when his Lord and Savior and his best friend, the one who loved him, was taken up physically into the sky and was hidden by a cloud until they saw him physically no more. And Jesus entered into the presence of his Father, still in the flesh. And there stands our Lord and our Savior at the Father's side. That's where Jesus is right now, in the flesh. What's Jesus doing there? What, what's Jesus doing there? Romans 8.34 tells us, He is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. It says that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. And John himself says this in his letter to the church. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus is not was, but is, not just was, but now is at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. He's advocating for us. He is speaking to God on our behalf and he's making a case for our forgiveness on the basis of his blood. He's saying, look, he's saying, God, forgive them. Look at me. I've paid for their sins. Here's the thing about forgiveness. God does not forgive us because he has a sudden burst of niceness and he just wants to kind of go, oh, don't worry about it anymore, it's okay. He can't do that. He's, he's truth. God does not hide away our problems. He does not disregard them. He, he cannot do that because he is true. God forgives sin not by pretending that the sin didn't happen, not by closing his eyes to sin, God forgives sin not by downgrading the offense of sin or, or saying, oh, it actually wasn't that bad or, or, you know, my expectations aren't actually that high anymore. God forgives sin because his son, Jesus Christ, has paid for it already. It would be unjust of God to require a double payment for sin. Jesus has already paid our debt for us. He's already paid it. God is not requiring a second sacrifice it has been fully, fully paid. Our sin is infinitely, infinitely offensive to God because God is infinitely, infinitely holy and perfect and innocent. Our, our infinitely offensive sin deserves an infinite, eternal punishment. And that means that there is an infinite gap between us and God that we have no hope of ever crossing. But God shows that his love for us is greater than infinity because he has crossed that infinite gap in the person and the flesh of Jesus Christ. He has received our infinite punishment upon his shoulders on our behalf. He took our place to bring us right into the presence of God and to make us his children. These are the bookends which John has been building towards this whole time. He has revealed him. He has made him known. Jesus has revealed God. No one's ever seen God, but Jesus revealed him. Jesus shows us exactly who God is. 
You and I have a higher chance of scooping up a teaspoon of neutron star than we do of finding our way to God. Jesus has come to do the impossible, to make God truly known to all of us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.